Hey everyone, this is Jonathan Capehart. This week, we talked to Ambassador Wendy Sherman. She's the former Undersecretary of State for Political Affairs who also happened to have negotiated the Iran nuclear deal. And we get into U.S. foreign policy, the impact of Donald Trump on it, and the one question she gets in her travels around the world. What are you all thinking? That and her reaction to being called a Washington power broker in line with Lloyd Cutler, Vernon Jordan, Bob Barnett, coming up right now. Hi, I'm Jonathan Capehart. Welcome to Cape Up. And this week, we're going to talk to Ambassador Wendy Sherman, former U.S. Undersecretary of State for Political Affairs and a senior counselor at the Albright Stonebridge Group. And I want to thank Madam Ambassador for being here. Thanks for coming in. Delighted to be with you, Jonathan. I've got to start on Donald Trump and ISIS. <laughs> at a campaign rally, Donald Trump said that President Obama, quote, is the founder of ISIS and that Hillary Clinton is the, quote, co-founder. He then repeated that assertion both on CNBC and the Hugh Hewitt radio show the next day. Talk about the impact of that kind of talk uh, has had on the perception of U.S. foreign policy abroad. Well, actually, Jonathan, it's almost as if Donald Trump is channeling Vladimir Putin, uh, because Putin has held the conspiracy theory, as have many in the Middle East, Uh, that somehow, those who are nefarious in the Middle East, that somehow the United States, through a conspiracy, has created this horrific, horrendous, barbaric terrorist organization. And both Putin and the nefarious actors in the Middle East are doing that because they want America to, to go into decline. They want America to be less powerful in the world. So Trump, by doing this during the campaign, not only is wrong, uh, it was al-Zakari that founded uh, ISIL or ISIS or Daesh. It is um, very, very worrisome what he's doing. You know, we were both at the Brussels Forum mm-hmm. uh, this past March and everywhere you turn. And I'm sure it would, this happened with me and I'm sure it would happen with you. Everybody wanted to talk about Donald Trump. And I can only imagine that your foreign policy circles um, are in a constant state of of hair on fire, especially when the possibility of a President Trump having control of the U.S. nuclear arsenal comes into play. Absolutely, Jonathan. I have been, since I've been out of government, uh, to the Middle East, to Asia, to Europe, uh, and everywhere I go, I get asked the same question, what are you all thinking? (laughs) Uh, And I think the thing that is most concerning is that this is not sort of entertainment. This is not a reality show. This is reality. And in reality, uh, only the president of the United States can take us to nuclear war, can launch nuclear weapons. He alone makes that decision. And for someone who gets slighted by whatever anyone says, can't take any critique. And so one just imagines mm-hmm. if someone looks at him the wrong way that he might decide, and he has said uh, that he might use nuclear weapons. What are they for if we're not going to use them? Which is such an extraordinary comment. The reason we have them is as a deterrent, so we never have to use them. And when he has said, well, maybe we should let Japan get nuclear weapons, we should let others get nuclear weapons, then they can take care of North Korea with its nuclear weapons. He has no idea that the United States could be destroyed in 30 minutes or less. But there are a lot of Americans out there who hear that and go, well, yeah, 
Absolutely. Why shouldn't we? We've got them. Why shouldn't we use them? Why shouldn't we let people know that we will use them? Why shouldn't we let Japan and South Korea have nuclear weapons to defend themselves? Because then that's some, one less thing that the United States has to do. Well, because if you start a nuclear war, it will end with the destruction of the United States of America. So you talked a couple of times about 30 minutes. In 30 minutes, the United States could be destroyed. Yes. But the president has even less time to decide what to do. Isn't that right? I've yes. Seen, I've seen written six minutes. Six minutes, probably. Uh, what happens is the president is given a reason why, in fact, he has to take action. Uh, he opens up that code book uh, that travels with him and that's all the of the time. That's the football. The football so, is a, like a, a leather-bound steel case. Right. It's a leather-bound steel case. Inside that steel case is a set of a, a code book, in essence, uh, where it says you can do this kind of attack or this kind of attack or this kind of an attack. And then he carries with him a plastic card, which are security codes. That's the biscuit. That allow him to then put in codes, in essence— uh, that say it is time to launch a nuclear weapon, uh, and that weapon can be launched by sea, by air, by land. And depending upon which weapon he chooses and to do what, it can happen incredibly quickly given whatever the target is. And quite frankly, although the Secretary of Defense confirms that, it, in fact, it's the right security code, uh, he cannot veto the president's decision. So the president of the United States alone alone you know, can take us to a nuclear war. And I talked to, to uh, uh, Malcolm Nance, who is a mm -hmm. fellow MSNBC contributor, and he is a, a, a terrorism analyst there. And he was the one who impressed upon me the importance of this, this one piece of U.S. foreign policy that is probably the overriding issue for him, the fact that the president of the – there is no one – who can stop the president of the United States from launching a nuclear attack once he or she has decided to do so? And when I asked, like, wait, what do you mean? Like, what? There's got to be something. And he said the only way to prevent it from happening is if the president is tackled. The president is tackled or— Before, before he right, like, or does the biscuit. Right, or someone in the chain of command decides they're not going to obey the orders of the president of the United States. Which is illegal. Which is illegal. And every one of our fine military is trained to follow the commander-in-chief. You know, it's, it's just not a risk we should take with someone who is as changeable, as thin-skinned, as unknowledgeable about the issues in front of us and the real challenges that we face as a country to our national security. So uh, nuclear weapons and the, the use, or God forbid, the use of nuclear weapons is one part of the foreign policy discussion I never thought we would be having mm -hmm. um, uh, this year, let alone any, any year. But what are some of the other things that we as a nation should be concerned about that will be on the next president's plate, whether that is a President Trump or a President Clinton? Well, no doubt Kim Jong-un. And there is no doubt that North Korea, which has nuclear weapons and likely several, uh, is a great risk in the area. So far, we've worked with our partners to try to contain that. Uh, but North Korea continues not only to build nuclear weapons, but the delivery mechanisms to deliver those nuclear weapons. So that's going to be a huge challenge because Kim Jong-un 
in spite of the fact that Donald Trump might find him fascinating, uh, is terrifying himself. Mm -hmm. Uh, So we have to deal with that. Uh, We certainly have to deal with uh, China, which is a great rising power, Russia, which wants to be a great rising power. And in both cases, there are places where we can cooperate and work together and places where we are going to have to challenge and sometimes confront. These are very complicated relationships, uh, and uh, we need someone who knows how to navigate uh, such difficult relationships. You know, Mitt Romney famously said in one of the I think it was one of the 2012 debates that Russia was the greatest enemy the United States faced. And he was laughed at then. I admit I was one of those one of those people. But no one's really laughing now from where you sit. Is Russia the greatest enemy we face or is it some other nation, maybe North Korea or as you were just talking about, is it non-state actors like um, ISIS um, that we should truly be frightened about? Well, look, I think that terrorism is number one on Americans' minds because in their everyday life, they want to know that they can go to a nightclub, that they can go to a mall, uh, that they can go to a movie theater uh, and not have their lives at risk by a terrorist act in in a truly barbaric way. So I think for people's day-to-day lives, that's the greatest fear and anxiety. Uh, I don't see Russia uh, or China or other uh, great powers as enemies. Uh, There are things that we do not want them to do. Putin is clearly uh, trying to gain greater power, and he is uh, the KGB agent that he has always been. And he does want to uh, control a territory. That's why he tried to annex uh, illegally Crimea. Mm -hmm. Now the Ukrainians are pushing back, and he doesn't much like that. Uh, So we have a lot to be concerned about where Russia is concerned. We don't want them to challenge the Baltics. There are many of our partners and allies in Europe who are quite concerned about Russia. uh, And we want to make sure that there is protection. You know, it's part of this whole business that uh, Trump has also talked about where NATO is concerned, where he has said we need to get rid of NATO uh, because why should we come to the aid of all of these countries under Article 5, which would require us to— Uh, An attack on one is an attack on all, which is what Article 5 is. Why would we do that when they haven't paid their full dues by increasing their military budgets? You know, this isn't a building transaction. This is not like constructing a hotel or a golf course. This is an alliance. It's not transactional. And more importantly, Article 5 has only been invoked once. When was that? That was right after 9-11 when NATO said it was going to come to the defense of the United States of America and went with us to Afghanistan. So the great irony of what Donald Trump has said is the one time Article 5 has ever been invoked was for the security of the United States of America. Speaking of the security of the United States of America, how damaging is it to have uh, Donald Trump out there still talking about a ban of indeterminate length of time on, first it was Muslims coming to the United States. Then it was a ban on people coming from territories that have been um, harmed or by terrorism. I can't remember now (laughs) the latest Mm -hmm. incarnation of this ban. How damaging is that to U.S. security and also to our foreign policy? 
I would say it is damaging in many ways because it's also damaging to our very values. The United States of America is a country of immigrants. Every one of us, except, unfortunately, African Americans who came here through slavery, and for the most part, but indeed, uh, the largest part of our population came here through immigration. Uh, and it has always been sometimes the latest group that came was mm-hmm. scared of the next group that came, but we figured out how to integrate everyone into our society. That's our great strength. That's our great resource. So it undermines basic American values. But even beyond that, uh, we rely on uh, majority Muslim countries to work with us to stop ISIL in the Middle East, to say they can't come here while at the same time saying we want their help and their assistance is absurd. Uh, We are, I talked about hearts and minds a moment ago. We are saying to Muslims all over the world, you're not wanted here. Well, that'd make me pretty angry if I was an upstanding Muslim going about my life. Uh, And that might create an opening uh, for ISIL uh, to recruit those folks who now have a new grievance against the United Mm -hmm. States. So, you know, coming to this country, you have to go through an awful lot of procedures to get into the United States. It takes a long time. For most Syrians who want to come here, it can take easily two years Mm -hmm. or more because you have to go through so many screenings, so many processes. Uh, And certainly we should do everything we need to to make that safe and to give Americans all the security we possibly can. Uh, But to ban any group just on the basis of who they are is one of the most anti-American things I can think of. Now, you know, I like to ask folks who I know, (laughs) who know my interviewees for questions or insights I couldn't possibly think of on my own. So let me read you something a mutual friend wrote. This person wrote, she's one of the exceptionally few women to have this full-bodied career, the Washington full-service professional, (laughs) really few, being the Lloyd Cutler, Vernon Jordan, Bob Barnett (laughs) as a woman, very, very, very rare. Lloyd Cutler, mega lawyer, former chief counsel to President Carter. Vernon Jordan, mega lawyer, confidant to presidents, most notably President Clinton and President Obama. Bob Barnett, mega lawyer. He has advised President Clinton. He is, I know, has uh, advised Secretary Clinton. He's a, if you have a book or a television contract, he's the guy to go to. He's my lawyer for my MSNBC contract. How does it feel to be grouped in there, Lloyd Cutler, Vernon Jordan, Bob Barnett, when I saw those names, those names are instantly recognizable in Washington. And to have Wendy Sherman. Well, I don't think of myself that way. I have great admiration and respect for all three of those men who are truly extraordinary and have been extraordinary, both private and public servants to our country. Uh, You know, we all who are in some public spaces as well as private space, there are two of us. There's Wendy Sherman, and then there's Wendy Sherman. And I live with the former. That's somebody who's uh, married to Bruce, mother to Sarah, grandma to Ezra and Oscar, uh, you know, has to fix breakfast in the morning and get the laundry done uh, and think about what the future is going to be for my grandchildren. And then I have the privilege and honor of being the other Wendy Sherman who maybe can do something about that future so that my grandkids and everybody else's grandkids uh, can have a future which will be better than the life that I've had, which has been pretty terrific. So having helped um, 
so many others <laughs> um, break those glass ceilings. What's the number one lesson you've learned that you would impart to the generation coming up for them to be successful? Well, I uh, was very privileged to give a commencement speech at uh, for Johns Hopkins School of Advanced International Studies this year. And the theme of the speech I gave a couple of others as well was, I wish you an unexpected life. Uh, I tell young people, don't have a five-year plan or you'll miss the best opportunities. Uh, when I started out, I had an undergraduate degree in sociology and urban studies. I was early in my career director of child welfare in the state of Maryland. Then I went into politics and did that for a long time and then got a call one Sunday night uh, from Tom Donilon, who also is uh, well-known here in Washington, uh, who knew the person who was about to become Secretary of State, Warren Christopher, because they were both lawyers at O'Melveny, though they mm. didn't really know each other. They were on opposite sides of the United States because Chris was in California and Tom was here in Washington. And he said, Warren Christopher would like to see you. I said, really? So I went and saw Warren Christopher, uh, and he and the President of the United States, Bill Clinton, uh, were interested in my becoming the Assistant Secretary for Legislative Affairs for the State Department. I ended up doing that. That was about 25 years ago, and I've only done national security and foreign mm -hmm. policy since. But if you'd asked me when I graduated college and then when I got my master's degree in social work as a community organizer, whether that was what I was going to do in my life, I would have said, really? Uh, so I wish everybody, every young person, an unexpected and rich and rewarding life. Ambassador Wendy Sherman, thanks so much for coming in. Thanks, Jonathan. Thanks for listening to Cape Up. Tune in every Tuesday. You can find us on iTunes and Stitcher. You know what? Do me a favor. Subscribe and then rate and review us. I'm Jonathan Capehart of The Washington Post. You can find me on Twitter at CapehartJ. Mm -hmm.